Ms. Schaefer Farm and Ranch, uh, yeah. right here in between Lind and Ritzville uh, with Mr. Derek Schaefer. Thank you so much for having me out, and yeah. we're really looking forward to the conversation today. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. Um, would you share a little bit more about yourself, your farm, who you farm with? Sure. Sure. I'm the fifth generation here, like so many others that came uh, on the wagon train in the late 1800s. And I farm with my wife, Susan, and our two children who are both in college now. And then also my parents are still involved in the operation. So it's a pretty small family farm, um, but uh, but we, we sure are blessed to be out here. Oh, that's great. And you are right out here in between um, Lind and Ritzville, right around the corner from the Dryland Research Station with WSU. And there's some pretty fun farming conditions out here from what I understand. Do you want to talk a little more about those? Yeah, fun. I don't know. That's sort of a relative statement, I guess, um, depending on the year. Um, it's challenging, although farming is challenging anywhere you are in the world. We have our own unique challenges. Um, it really has is nice to have that Lynn station so close to us and um, have collaborated with the researchers down there on many projects over the years. We've really benefited. I think we've benefited probably more than maybe the research they've, they've, they've gotten out of it, but it's been, it's been really fun, but it is very dry here. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Like your soil, your standard crop rotation, um, and of course how much rain you get usually. We're right in between Lynn and Ritzville. And I think the Lynn 40-year average is around nine and a half inches of rain a year. And Ritzville is actually 11 and a half. So in that 20-mile range, you pick up two inches of rainfall. Some wow. of it has to do with, you know, moving further away from the rain shadow of the Cascade Mountains. And some of it also has to do with elevation. Ritzville's a little higher in elevation, and it seemed to catch a little more rain up there. Um, that's a highly significant difference you know, and we, we see that difference across our farm as we farm some, some land towards Lynn and some closer to Ritzville. And you can really see that that's a, a big difference. Well, I'm looking forward, too, to hearing a little bit more in this conversation about, you know, how your management goals and the things you try might look different from field to field across such a dramatic gradient. Um, how about your soil? What is that looking like out here, aside from being dry most of the time, unfortunately? Yeah, we have really nice soil. It's a nice, uh, most of it's a Ritzville silt loam. Um, really, really great soils. Um, really productive. Just add water. <laughs> and, and that seems to be the, the missing component most years. Yeah, there's always, I think that's the Liebig's law of the minimum. I think that is one of the, I think that's the minimum Yeah. Uh, more often than not out here. Um, would you describe, um, well, so what experiments and trials do you have going on on the farm this, this year and in recent years or coming up next year? Yeah, so this year actually we have um, three different varieties of yellow peas in the same field. Um, one is a, a variety that's been out for a while. One is a newer variety that Rebe Rebecca McGee released, I think, last year. And then another one is a, a new variety from Kurt Bronworst at uh, ProGene. And so we have all three of those. And so everybody's kind of interested in seeing how, how they come up and how they grow and, of course, uh, what the yield is, is like. But we're watching that closely. And, and peas are a very new crop out here. Um, I think we're in our seventh crop year with them. But, but they are very new. 
And it's really been exciting to actually have a, a crop to rotate to besides wheat. That's great. Well, and can you clarify just whether those are winter or spring peas? They are fall seeded yellow peas. Awesome. Yeah. There there have been some trials with and actually some production of fall seeded green peas and they're having some success with that as well. So it's just kind of uncharted territory. We're all trying to learn and figure it out, but the rotational benefits are really great. And so we're willing to, you know, sort of dive into it and figure it out as we go because we're we're seeing positive results. Do you want to talk a little bit more about those? I, I know, you know, one of the things everybody kind of talks about when incorporating pulses into the rotation is maybe you can cut back a little bit on your nitrogen. Um, but what uh, what else are you kind of seeing as you're experimenting with the peas? Yeah, so we are in a traditional wheat fallow area like, you know, the other three and a half million acres that are in that central Oregon through central Washington area, traditional deep furrow country. Um, fall seeded crops seem to be the best. We've tried continuous spring crops, have not had a lot of success with that. Fall seeded crops are really, really the bread and butter out here. And so when, you know, we came across the, the fall seeded peas, we thought, hey, maybe this is something we can try. We're not seeing a lot of benefit or a lot of gain in nitrogen fixation in the soil or increased nitrogen levels. But what we are seeing is that by having a broadleaf crop, um, canola is another one that we, we have enjoyed trying out here. Um, but by having a broadleaf crop, you can mix up the chemistries and you can really clean up the grassy weed issues that are a real problem in this you know, continuous wheat rotation. So I got to ask, though, how are the peas, how do those stand up against the Russian thistle? Um, if you get a good stand, actually pretty good. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest weed pressure we would face is um, mustards in the spring. Yeah, that's um, awesome. And there, we do have some chemistry we can use on the peas. I'm hoping there's some more innovation there or some more chemistries that maybe can come out of the soybean world that may work for peas out here too. But so far, some of those products aren't labeled for peas. Driving around this country, you definitely see those those thistles in the field a, a fair bit. Oh, so. yeah. They're a big challenge. They're a big challenge in our, our fallow side of the year too, you know. So that's something we really have to be mindful of. Maybe we should come back to some things you've tried <laughs> there. I do first have to ask, um, with your peas, as you've been trying them, have you has there been any like new equipment learning or, you know, what are some of the things that you've been playing with or seeding day? It sounds like you've got a few years in the, the peas. Yeah. And actually the first year that we planted the, the fall seeded peas, it was really dry. It was, I think it was the fall of 2015 and Dr. Schillinger was interested in what we were doing. So I was talking to him about it and he helped me gain some confidence to, okay, let's try a field of these. We seeded them, and shortly after, we seeded them really deep because it was dry. Our drill would go deep. He said, don't worry about putting them deep. We seeded them really deep. They probably had seven inches to emerge. And then shortly after, we got a half inch of rainfall, which would be the end of any winter wheat planted at, you know, five inches deep. I mean, that's it. It's going to crust. It won't come up. So I called Dr. Schillinger, and I said, 
I said, what, what do I do with these peas? I oh, said, they got rained on. There's a huge crust on top. He said, do not touch them. Don't touch them. They'll be fine. And lo and behold, they, they're very slow, but they came out, emerged great, had a, had a very nice crop that first year. Oh, that's, that's great. Yeah. They, they have some push in all that. I mean, that big seed, I think really helps them get, and it's definitely different than canola. Yeah. Um, so actually, um, from the equipment side, I know, um, being out here, uh, it, it was wonderful when you hosted the shop, the canola shop talk this summer. Yeah. Um, one of the things that you were talking about was how to seed canola in this deep furrow country. Yeah. And you were talking about your drill. You had a cool little video that you showed. Um, is that your favorite drill for peas as well? Sure. You know, one of the challenges for us getting into direct seed was how are we going to seed these acres? Because there there wasn't a lot of, well, there was basically no equipment designed for deep furrow direct seeding. You know, no-till, deep furrow. It's like no one in the world does that. Who would do that? And so the major equipment manufacturers just didn't build equipment for that. So we we built some of our own equipment for a few years, tried a few things. And um, after a few years of that, we actually ended up work collaborating with AgPro uh, on sort of an initial design. And then they've, they've run with that from there. And so they're actually building a deep furrow no-till drill that's very suited for our area and does a nice job. We can seed shallow with it for canola, which the canola, we don't like to try to make the canola come more than about three inches. That's sort of, you know, kind of our max depth, I guess we prefer to be at. But the peas, you can see, you know, as deep as the drill will go. So um, AgPro was able to build that into the design to seed both shallow and really deep. And so um, if you can do that, then you can also seed wheat with it. No, oh, it's, it's amazing um, just from the applied farming standpoint, right? We can talk a lot about soil science principles and that sort of thing. But it is really amazing how much um, just that, that one piece of, a, of equipment can make such a big difference in how it goes to try things. And if you're diversifying your cropping system or if you're wanting to make a transition into less disturbance. Mm -hmm. um, so you did mention that you transitioned into no-till. Is that kind of in the recent past? Yeah, I think around 2016. Um, we had been playing with it for a few years on a small amount of acreage. And then 2016, 17, we kind of went all in once we felt like, okay, there's, we, we have some, you know, equipment now that we can get down deep to moisture, make a furrow and, you know, get plant establishment. Because one of the things we didn't want to do was go away from what the things that we knew were successful. And that would be um, seeding dates and, you know, fall seeded crops. And so we weren't really willing to say, okay, we're so passionate about direct seeding that, you know, we're going to throw out everything that's agronomic, you know, that we know from history. Like, you know, we know the ideal seeding window. And so we wanted to try to be able to still get our crops established in that ideal time frame. So you mentioned, um, trying direct seed on a on the smaller portion of your farm to get your feet under you and learn a little bit about that. Um, and then you scaled up. I'd love to hear a bit more about that process. And if you could go back to 
talk to yourself the first year that you did direct seed, what would you tell yourself <laughs> to give yourself oh. kind of a leg up? And, and if that yeah. was the right way to do that process? Well, I mean, I, I, I never thought it would work. You know, I mean, we were, we were really good at tillage. I mean, we, we were good farmers at eight passes across the field to get a nice stand of wheat. And I tell you what, it's very difficult to move away from something that you're pretty good at doing to something that's unknown. Um, especially those first years when, you know, maybe the, the neighbor across the fence has a really nice stand of wheat and you're just out there seeding and trying to figure out how am I going to get this wheat to grow with this drill that's unproven and I've still got to make modifications to. So that's a really big challenge. It was um, pretty scary, but also the most exciting thing we've ever done. That along with introducing crop rotation into this traditional wheat area. Um, those have been the things that have been kind of kept us looking forward. You got to keep it interesting. And I know in um, past episodes talking, now we've been doing the podcast, we've got a few episodes under our belt. And, you know, I, I think about the transition to direct seed and how it looks to the neighbors. When you're driving past and you see your neighbor's field and you can see that nice, all that green coming up versus when it's in the direct seed furrows, it's a little bit, it looks different across yeah. the field. And, and we're so conditioned to having it look this way and not this way. Um, and, and so there's just a little bit of retraining in, in your brain. There's a lot of retraining. <laughs> and it really is a shift from, you know, back when I, I first came back to the farm in 1998. And our mindset was, you know, that clean, smooth summer follow looked really good and you know trashy summer fall was was not good we were you know the mindset was well we're going to have disease we're not going to be able to seed because we're going to plug the drill and then moving to i mean for a few years we ran a stripper header and oh my gosh talk about something that looks you know a, a little abnormal i mean the fallow year everything looks you know rough and it's hard like you said it's hard to see the wheat coming up in the furrows and um, but it's a real mindset shift to go across now and look at the, the land that is really protected um, by all that straw that's still anchored to the ground. It's protecting the soil. We don't have dust storms around the area as much. Um, the water doesn't run out of the fields. Um, it's, but it's, it's a real mental shift. And that's probably, I mean, um, the, the expense of the equipment and changing all that is a real challenge. But I would say the, the mental challenge of being okay with the different look is probably just as significant. I believe that. What did that look like? Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's, it's really hard on a small scale because oftentimes you, you know, I think the mindset is, well, well, we'll choose a field that is out of the way. It's out of sight. It's out of mind. It's not my best quality soil and so maybe we don't really give it as good a shot as we should um as we started out you know from from that sort of initial trial we started adding more acres and it was like that this is you know we have more confidence in it we can make it work and then it becomes really difficult to sort of have two completely different systems from a timing perspective it's like well i need to be running the sprayer and it's like oh well i need to be rod weeding over and in these fields and so it's sort of hard to be caught in the middle 
And I think once we decided, okay, we're going to go all in, we're going to sell our tillage equipment, um, then there was kind of like no looking back and, and you're just moving forward. And, and it was actually um, still a challenge, but easier from a planning perspective to sort of do the operations at the right time of the year. Yeah. What, I guess what convinced you, you know, after trying it, um, you know, one of my questions here is, um, you know, how, how do you decide when something you're trying is going to work on a larger scale versus, you know, maybe this is something that isn't going to work out or maybe we need to try it differently? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, our concern over soil loss was ranked right up there towards the top. I mean, this, the blowing dust, the water erosion. Um, ditches if the if it rained during the middle of summer down the the rod weeder tracks you'd have to go fix it was just like kind of gut wrenching to see your soil run away so that I mean that was a big consideration but then you know once we realized okay we can make this work we can we have the equipment that we can we can do it we have a direct seed deep furrow drill um, then we really felt like the way we were going to make it work here was to add um, add crop rotation. So whether that be peas or canola, depending on the seeding conditions at the, you know, when we set out to do that at the beginning of the seeding season. If there's enough moisture for canola, we'll seed canola. If we, if there's not, we'll seed peas. But either way, we're going to put a broadleaf crop in there. And then um, the other thing that made it work was adding a spot sprayer to that chem follow um, rotation Is that because a weed it? yeah that's a weed it or now we have a John Deere sea and spray um, any of them are you know there's different ones out there but any of the spot spray technology where you can save you know upwards of easily upwards of 80 percent on a application that really made it work it was like okay we can't go across all these fields with a full broadcast application especially late in the summer when those Russian thistles that you mentioned are get really difficult to kill. They're pretty easy to kill when they're tiny and it's and the conditions are good. But as it gets hot and dry, they're very difficult to kill. And so with the spot sprayer, we can we can manage those a lot better. I actually heard Dr. Burke was just on the wheat beat talking about the Russian thistle management. So you know if you're in the business of listening to podcasts, that yeah. is he was talking about that when they were smaller and yeah. There definitely that's the time to get them. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. That was an early mistake of ours was not wanting to go across the field too many times. So we'd wait a little longer, thinking, well, maybe a few more will pop up and we'll get you know the second flush. But if you wait too long and they're too big, then you really have a problem. So I got to ask now. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about um, more precision weed management um, over the last couple episodes that we've had some recent ones. Um, how, how long have you had that technology on your farm? So I think we are in maybe our, about our seventh year of, I mean, we had the spot sprayer right away. Um, we could see the benefit of it. So we had one of the, we had, we had the first weed it. There was a weed seeker made by Trimble. And then the weed it is a similar concept that's, uh, made in the Netherlands and actually, um, Adam Hutton had a distributorship for Weeda in Australia. He sort of saw th thought that there would be a possibility to make it work here in the United States. He came over from Australia and um, 
was touring around and, and we bought in and put the first one together and um, sort of haven't looked back since then. Oh, that's great. So what are some of the things? So, you know, that sounds like another thing you've been trying on your farm and, and maybe working to figure out how to best use it as a tool in your system. Mm-hmm. Um, are there some things, again, that if you were to look back and, you know, talk to yourself when you were first yeah. using it, what have you learned in, in the intervening time that you would maybe share to shorten that learning curve? Yeah, I, I mean, several things about the spot spring. You know, we, initially we wanted to use it really early in the season and um, weeds were really so small and they're so easy to kill that it really doesn't take much chemical to, to kill them. So realizing that we were missing weeds because some of them weren't emerged yet, it was just too early. We now make, we, we plan on two broadcast applications before we start using the, the weed. It. So because even that second broadcast application, the weeds are you know small, easy to kill. And the stuff that's microscopic in size, we still get a kill on that. So that delays our first spot spray application. And then from there, it's, you know, once again, not waiting too long. Um, Going out there a little earlier than you think you might have to, even though you might have to make another pass late, you know, sooner across the field. Um, It's, they're just easier to kill. And when you're, when you're not broadcast spraying and you're not spraying, chemical over all the acres you know really it's just the the time to run the sprayer across those fields sure and and i guess i've heard that maybe happens a little bit more frequently with the spot spraying but also that you have maybe more tools in your toolbox have you been leveraging maybe different kinds of chemistry than you would use for a broadcast application yeah absolutely different chemistry higher rates um more water you know i mean you don't have to fill as often. So, I mean, you can, instead of filling, you know, six or eight times a day for the sprayer, you might only fill once a day. And so, um, knowing, realizing that we, we have upped the amount of water so that we're getting better coverage and higher rates. Um, so sort of doing both and we've had really, really good luck doing that. So, a recent episode with Jesse Brunner, he talked about nozzle selection. Mm -hmm. Are you a bit of a nozzle connoisseur or have you have you been <laughs> yeah. playing around with those at all a little bit um i think at, with this related to the spot spray we just feel like flooding them is the best and so we were we're sort of back to just the the flat fan spray with lots of water so um, droplet size is big because as you move up in nozzle size the, the droplet size and drift isn't as big of a concern as it is with a, a real small orifice size I imagine too, because you're so dry out here that you don't want to have too much of a mist or it will just evaporate. Yeah, yeah, especially when it's hot. (laughs) Where do you go to learn more about a new practice before you try it? I I attend a lot of meetings, you know, the the Direct Seed Conference is great, but there's a lot of interaction just in conversation among farmers and neighbors and texting and phone calls and winter meetings, the sidebar conversations, as as you well know, are some of the biggest benefit of, of going to some of those conferences. Uh, the presenters are, you know, usually have wonderful information, but then you'll be out in the hallway chatting with a neighbor. Hey, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Um, so some social stuff, you know, on, I mean, there's groups on social media that you can follow and things. I don't do a lot of that. But um, 
But yeah, I think it's just the interaction with other people who are trying new things and, and understanding that, you know, we each all farm in our, our own sort of unique environment. What works on my farm may not work on even my neighbor's farm, but um, there's lessons to be learned. You can glean information from what someone else is trying. That's part of what we're we're hoping to do in, in this space too, right? And yeah. thanks for um, hosting the Canola Stop and Talk out in this area this summer. That was such a fun conversation to to be here in your shop and just hearing some some real canola legends swapping stories was yeah. a pretty great experience. Yeah, yeah, we're we're really pretty new to the canola, but it's been so fun. It's so fun to see the, a tiny little seed that you know, it's smaller than a poppy seed and have it become a plant that's, you know, six or seven feet tall at harvest time. Um, it's amazing. Of course, then the bright yellow color during flowering is, is really beautiful to see and a, so different from what we're used to seeing out here. Um, and then, I mean, the main reason that we grow canola and peas is once again for that crop rotation, the break in the disease cycle and the ability to target grassy weeds with a different chemistry that, um, you know, a lot of the chemistries that we have for, for wheat targeting grassy weeds in wheat crops, um, just are not that effective anymore. We've overused them. And so they're, they're wearing out and there's not a lot of new ones coming down the road. Yeah, I've heard that. Um, is there other rotational benefits you see? Because it sounds like canola is really making people some money, but Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, it seems like a lot of the crop rotation is still about how do we grow really great wheat? Because this is mm-hmm. still fundamentally oh, yeah. wheat country. And so can you talk a little bit about rotational benefits? Oh my gosh, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing. And yeah, we're we're actually trying to put um, 20% of our farm into a rotation crop every year and a broadleaf crop. And we're... Re- after you do that for a few years, you really start to see the benefits of it. And you have clean wheat crops, you know, higher yields for the most part. I think the higher yields come from possibly a break in the disease cycle, but also you don't have the weed pressure. You don't have those grassy weeds out there. I think we underestimate how much those can reduce our yields, even if we, you know, can, can spray something on them to sort of keep them under the canopy. I think they still, you know, the cheatgrass and goat grass, it still reduces your yield, I think, more than, than we realize. And so, I mean, we grew the peas when they were six cents a pound. You know, since then, they're, they're, they're much better priced, and they're actually economic to grow. And when, when we have the wheat price, what it is today, you know, $6 locally, um, you know, peas compete really nicely with wheat. Especially um, if, you know, as I talked about before, if you only have to seed the peas once. And this year we were facing dry conditions, seeding the wheat. Some of it got rained on. We had to seed it again. Pea seed's expensive. It's not cheap. But if you only have to seed it once versus seeding wheat twice to get a crop, you know, there's there's one more thing in it. And it also um, has broken up the timing on both seeding and harvesting. Mm-hmm. So the canola, um, we feel pretty comfortable anything any date after August 10th. If we get a rain shower or conditions allow for us to seed canola, we'll go ahead and start seeding canola. 
Then we'll start seeding our peas a week of when we would normally start, a week ahead of when we would normally start seeding wheat. So that, you know, broadens that timeline a little bit, spreads that out. And then the peas are usually ready to harvest 10 days before the wheat crop. Um, canola can be really variable depending on the year. Sometimes it's it's not ready until after your wheat is, but um, but the peas are pretty reliably 10 days ahead of your wheat. To circle back, um, do you need any special equipment to harvest or, or plant peas? Not really. If you have a, a deep furrow drill, you know, for out here, I mean, because, you know, you need to be able to seed them deep. Yeah. To, you need to seed them deep into moisture. Um, no, I mean, you could do it in traditional fallow. You could do it in direct seed. You don't really need any any special equipment. Even for the harvest on the peas? For harvest, you har- you know, the peas are pretty close to the ground. So mm-hmm. having a header that, you know, maybe it has a, a flex cutter bar or it's a, a hinged draper like a McDonald or the newer John Deere headers that allow you to cut pretty close to the ground, that is that is helpful. I think you could harvest them with a rigid header if it wasn't too wide. Are there things that you do on your farm where you manage toward trying to create more consistency or evenness around your yield? Yeah, I think it's back to the initial comment about rainfall here. I mean, it really is our most limiting factor. But, you know, we just try to put ourselves in a position to be successful if the rain comes. And I think, you know, overall, our yields are are moving up. I mean, genetics on the crops are better. Wheat, canola, peas, everything's Everything's better. There's been improvements, you know, consistently over the years on the genetics of the crops we grow. Um, But our yields, I feel like, have actually gone up now that we've sort of got a handle on how to seed in this direct seed system. And I think we probably have more moisture in our ground than when we were tilling. All in all, I think it, it can get in the ground and conditions that it can't get in the ground in a fallow situation when the ground freezes really hard you know we've got some capillaries that you know the snow melt and stuff can get into the ground and maybe we don't maybe it doesn't run off Uh, i think some of the shading from the residue on top helps keep the ground cooler and all in all we you know, we feel like our yields are as, as good or better than when we were in the fallow system. My soil science brain thinks about um, about the organic matter, and especially in such a dry climate, that that might be really helpful in, in terms of, you know, hel- helping to buffer some of the worst of the conditions. You all out here don't have quite as much of the highly variable tra- terrain of the kind of core Palouse region. Yeah. Um, but, you know, looking at some of those fields, when you look across the landscape, you know, there is a lot of variation in yeah. in the soil conditions. So I'm just wondering how that looks out, out here for you. Yeah, it's interesting. Some of the, I would say, the most sensitive areas of field, some of the south slopes that were, you know, really tough to grow a um, crop on in a tillage system, seem to have improved quicker than what we would consider the better soils, the North Slopes and, and better soil areas. It's it's really interesting. And oftentimes during seeding, those areas that were the toughest in the tillage system to get a wheat stand on are the easiest. Here it's really 
been something to watch. I bet it has been. Um, you know, when you were talking about trying, starting to try the no-till, you said, um, you know, you put it in your kind of worst conditions first in the backfield yeah. so nobody could watch it. <laughs> so as you're trying things, you know, as now, you know, um, some of the things you're trying on your farm, where, where do you put that? Has that changed? And when you do try it, how are you representing, what kind of field conditions are you representing? And how do you make sure that it is, sounds like you repeat year after year to get a good understanding of what it'll do with that kind of variation. You want to just mm -hmm. talk a bit more about your process there? Yeah, I think a lot of it too is, you know, as you overcome that worry and fear about, oh my gosh, what are people going to think? What are my landowners going to think? What are my neighbors going to think? And you realize that, okay, we're on the right track. We're, we're protecting a valuable resource out here and we're still growing a crop and, and, you know, making some money doing it. Once you realize that's all possible, then the fear of, you know, what people might think and they see your field has a lot of residue on it and it looks maybe ugly to them, that, that goes away. You just don't worry about that. We're just focused on, you know, trying to do the best job we can here. Um, I think there is some strength in numbers. I think it happens with a lot of things, you know, as maybe the first neighbor tries it, um, you know, they're kind of out on their own and then pretty soon somebody else does it. And then your next neighbor says, oh my gosh, I see that's working. I'm going to try it too. And so it's sort of a cluster effect. And I think we've had that out in our area. There's, there's definitely more um, direct seed acres out here than there is tilled fallow. You got some fun neighbors out here in yeah, this country. Yeah, no, some real innovators actually. So I, I mean, we're, we're, we're early adopters. I don't know that we're, you know, cutting edge, um, but we're we're early adopters. If we feel like something will work, then we'll we'll go ahead and try it. You guys are an inspiration out here, especially with how dry it is, and um, you know, I, I imagine that that makes trying things a bit of a different equation than it might somewhere else. I think one of the biggest challenges has been that there was not seeding equipment produced by a major manufacturer that was available to mm -hmm. move to a no-till system. And there still is not. AgPro's been wonderful. Um, but, um, you know, thank, thank goodness somebody like that has stepped up to the plate because for John Deere or Case, there's just not enough acres out here for them to, to say, okay, we're going to build a drill specific to farm you know three million acres i mean they want it to work they want it to work all across the united states and in every country in the world if they're going to do it um so thankfully all the tractors and combines <laughs> you know are universal for 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 every area but um, as far as seeding equipment um yeah we sort of had to kind of go down that road on our own as you said you guys are innovators and it's really inspiring as we wrap up i I'd like to hear a little bit more, and you've spoken to this a little bit more uh, already, but how do you determine your return on investment on a new practice? Yeah, I mean, we'll sit down and do an enterprise budget, you know, and compare the, the peas to the wheat and the canola to those. But it's not just the economic return on that crop. It's about having a system in place. And even if we take a loss on growing peas, the system is so much better for having it as part of the rotation that we, you know, we know it's sometimes it's really hard to measure um, 
economically because yields vary so widely. It's the way I think we really have to look at a much longer time frame, you know, maybe a 10-year horizon instead of a, you know, a one or two or four-year horizon even, and just say, okay, we we just see the benefits here, um, economic and soil health and all of the above. Um, so a little bit hard to measure, but um, I think after you do it for a while, you just sort of have a sense like, oh my gosh, this is the right way to go. Awesome. Um so what are the next things you're trying? Oh, wow. I feel like we've tried so much. We're just trying to sort of get better at the things we've already already put into place. Um, I think one thing we're trying to get better at is our, our timing and to be, ti- be as timely as possible with our operations as we've added more direct seed acres and added more acres to the farm you're going to come up against some constraint. And direct seeding, for us anyway, it's not as fast of an operation as when we were using the the traditional tillage method and and traditional deep furrow drills. Because at that time, all we needed to do was seed. Now we're seeding and fertilizing all at the same time, and we're pulling... um, you know, a shank through the ground for the first time of the year. So it pulls more like you're chiseling than like we're than like you're seeding with a traditional fallow deep furrow drill. It pulls really hard. Um, you know, it takes more time. So trying to figure out how to get enough hours of operation, you know, on those to still complete seeding in that ideal time window is I think that's some of the stuff we're working through right now. I'm just going to throw out another thank you for having me out during this time of year. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're at the we're at the end, but you know, it's been a really challenging year I think all across the region for people um trying to deal with residue whether it's tilled fallow or direct seed fallow and then you know, in this specific area, the drought and the dry conditions. Some areas have received some nice rains and they're seeding into moisture, but um, we were seeding into really marginal conditions and then received some rain in areas that was a crusting rain and so wheat that, you know, should have come up. So it's been a real challenging year, um, but, you know, hopefully it'll be a wet winter and a wet spring and we can make something out of this crop. I really hope that for you too. I'm sorry to hear of the struggles. Oh, it's, it's, you know, we everyone deals with it. So everyone has their unique challenges on their own farms. And, you know, we're, we're used to it and we just deal with it. I don't think it'd be farming otherwise. Right. And that's, <laughs> that's why yeah. this part of the world has got some of the most awesome and resilient folks I know. Yeah. So what's something you'd like to try, but maybe can't because of some sort of limitation, um, whether that's equipment or finances or just, you know, whatever that might be. I feel like we've we've tried quite a bit, and I feel really pretty good about the the things we've implemented. I love the crop rotation. Um, I've told people the only thing I regret about the crop rotation is not having more acres of it. Um, so we may push our comfort zone a little bit more on that and just continue to target the, the fields that have the worst grassy weed issues and try to 
put in more acres of peas and canola. Um, I love the canola. I mean, it's just, it's an awesome crop. It's, it's really difficult to get established at the right time in the fall out here. So um, it's sort of, I kind of think of it like an opportunity crop. If we have the opportunity, we'll grow it. And so we just want to be geared up and be ready that, you know, shortly after harvest or even during harvest, that if we get a significant rainfall, we can just go out there and get that canola in the ground. Yeah. Makes seed buying maybe a little tricky. <laughs> you kind of have to have it, you know, almost on hand and put it in the barn if you can't seed it and save it for next year. So, yeah. That's a good. That is a challenge. That's a good way to adapt and overcome. <laughs> Being around the corner with the Lind Research Station here, you've done a lot of work, I think, um, in collaboration with the research community here. And I know that's greatly appreciated um, by WSU. I know we... You were a big part of getting um, doctors sing in place here at mm -hmm. the station, um, as well as your past history. So, um, what do you want to maybe talk about a favorite project that you did with that? And also, if you have other questions that you'd love to, you know, hit up the research community that are on your mind. Sure. Yeah. No, it's just been um, wonderful. I am I am an Idaho Vandal, um, <gasps> so you know I hate to mention that here, but. Um, vandals and cougars seem to cohabitate okay so so we're doing fine um i just have so enjoyed that relationship with uh, the researchers and staff at the lynn station over the years um dr schillinger and i worked together on a few projects on our farm and i love um the evolution of his thought about conservation farming out here i was part of the undercutter project back when that was sort of the the latest greatest idea here um, we did a lot of that um, trying to you know increase conservation on the soil and he um, was really mindful to um, to change things at the right pace and not push new ideas too quickly on farmers we're you know we're creatures of habit and we we're good at what we do um, and we need research to support that um, but at the same time, sometimes we do need to be pushed a little. And I feel like um, the timing is right for Dr. Singh um, to be here and have such a great focus on soil health. Um, and I don't, it is maybe just a buzzword, but we're seeing that we can, you know, improve soil health and still grow really nice crops. So I think we can do both. And I think he's the right person at the right time. And we are really lucky to have that, that research station um, so close to home and, you know, to serve the farmers out here in this region who, you know, can't benefit from some of the research um, directly in the high rainfall areas. Oh, you said so much there. That was, that was <laughs> wonderful. Um, so I guess one of the questions that I've actually asked doctors, both of them, um, doctors saying, um, what is, what is, in your mind, what does soil health look like out here in the Lind region on your farm? Yeah, I think, um, I, I'd be curious what their answer was. I've um, talked with Dr. Singh about that just a little bit, but it's really hard to measure. 
Um, but I can tell you when you walk across the soil of a field that's been in direct seed for, you know, four or five crop years, um, it's different. It's different. You can tell it under your feet. You could close your eyes and walk across the field and tell the difference. You can dig in the ground and you can see the difference. You can see the, the root structure still in place. Um, I think some of the positive changes are, you know, the residue on top, but I think maybe more importantly is what's happening underneath the surface with those, the root structures that act as capillaries and keep the soil from fracturing into large, um, large soil clods when we take the drill through there. We've seen that. I will be the first to say I never thought it was possible. I did not believe there would be a change. Um, I didn't believe it. I was, you know, not on the no-till bandwagon. And I thought, oh, that's no way. But then you see it for yourself, and it is, it's really fun to watch. So it's been really rewarding to, to see that change. That there's, it's been so much fun talking with you today, Derek. I really appreciate everything you've shared okay. about your experience and, and your perspective on trying things on your farm and, and making sure that as we're thinking about these new technologies, like how, how does it work in this context for you and, and what your processes are for that? Well, I appreciate um, you coming out. We've got a lot to learn. I know that. Um, and we all do. <laughs> yeah, we all do. And that's really the fun part. That's what keeps us going. And so, you know, when you ask, what are we trying next? I think it's sort of right now for us, it's maybe sort of just sit back and try to catch up on the learning with, you know, all the things we've implemented by changing, completely changing the going away from a tillage system and then adding these crop rotations. It's like, okay, we need to catch up a little bit and just even try to get better at, at those things. Awesome. Um, thanks again for having me out. Is there anyone you would like to nominate to be on the on-farm trials podcast? Hmm. Let me give that some thought. I, I will get back to you on that. I look forward um, to it. Yeah, yeah, but there are so many names I could, I could come up with, but I will I'll think about that and get back to you. I like that very much. Thank you so much again, and you have a great rest of the season. Yeah, thank you.